There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The use of drones by both Russia and Ukraine has dominated headlines around the world in recent weeks. We've seen Iranian-supplied kamikaze drones used by Russia to target Kyiv, and suicide drones, allegedly Ukrainian in origin, striking the Kremlin and affluent parts of Moscow. Not only this, but on the battlefield, smaller loitering munitions have been used to strike tanks and target troops in trenches. But all of these incidents in themselves have a looming question. What actually are these kamikaze-style suicide loitering drones that we talk about? And what is the history behind their use? I'm your host, James Patton Rogers. This is Warfare. And to find out, I've invited my old friend Dan Gettinger onto the podcast. Dan was the co-founder of the Pioneering Centre for the Study of the Drone at Bard College. He is a technical guy, a number cruncher. And through his research, I've learned so much about the technical aspects of drones and how far they've spread around the world. But what Dan reveals here is fascinating. A surprising, much longer history behind the kamikaze drone than you might first expect. Enjoy. Hi, Dan. Welcome to Warfare. How are you doing, buddy? Doing great. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast. I mean, this is long overdue, but it turns out that the whole world has gone mad with drones. And so we need an actual drone expert, not just me chatting about drones left, right and centre, to give us some context about what is going on in the world. So thank you so much for taking the time. Now, when it comes to talking about drones, one of the hottest topics at this moment in time is this idea of kamikaze or suicide drones that have been most specifically adopted by Russia. I mean, the most iconic of these, I guess, is the Shahed-136, which is an Iranian-designed drone that's been sent over to Russia in its hundreds, some say in its thousands, that have been used to launch strikes on key targets, both energy targets and city centres and civilian targets, within Ukraine itself. So give us a bit of a context about the war in Ukraine. I mean, how impactful have drones been in this conflict so far? I think from a small unit perspective, uh, drones have been extremely impactful. You can see this on the ground, small units adopting quadcopters in large numbers and using them to improve their own situational awareness and to conduct strikes and to guide artillery strikes. So certainly from the small unit, I think that's where the real changes are taking place as in this conflict as opposed to in, in previous conflicts where we saw larger drones making a, a perhaps larger impact on the, the conduct of operations. Okay, so we're talking about small quadcopter systems with the four propellers on, the kind that we would buy off the internet or so many of us might well have got for Christmas one year. These sort of commercial drones that have been weaponized, are they actually the same systems or are they just similar? A lot of them are the same as consumer drones. And in fact, some of them are bought you know, off of consumer websites, but some of them are constructed based off of the models um, using those consumer models as inspiration for um, the development of other similar types of, of quadcopter drones. So it's a mix of both, I'd say. 
and how are they used when it comes to kind of the tactical battlefield use? Is this merely for intelligence and surveillance gathering? They're sent up above the trenches or from further back to, to pick out targets or to see where each side is moving? Or are they actually used as weapon systems themselves? It's all of the above. Drones are, have a lot of different uses on the battlefield, and they can be easily adapted to be used for reconnaissance or surveillance or to conduct strikes. And that's what we're seeing on the ground in Ukraine is that, that type of adaptive responsiveness that the Ukrainians are using to use drones in, in their favor. And are both sides using these systems? We don't know too much about what systems on the ground that the Russians are using. It seems that they're also using consumer drones, but traditionally the Russian military has not used many consumer drones, but recently I'd say in Ukraine they've stepped up their uses of these systems. And I assume that's partly due to the fact that we have Western sanctions on Russia and blockades of international exports, including the massive US push to try and stop even more Iranian drones being sent over to Russia. So it's trying to acquire as many commercial systems as it can. And many of these, of course, are manufactured in China. And then you can almost cannibalize these as well to make more military-esque weaponized systems. Yes. And in fact, the what I hope we'll get to this later, but the market for military drones for loading munitions, increasingly a, a number of the systems that are coming into this market are based off of consumer quadcopters. So these consumer quadcopter designs are filtering into specially designed systems for military use now as well. Right, I see. Well, before we get to those, so we have kind of at the smallest level, we have these quadcopter systems, which probably have a range of what, about 20, 30 kilometers at their max. And then you have the much larger medium altitude, long endurance systems, which had more of an impact at the beginning of the conflict. I mean, I remember the Turkish Bayraktar TB2 was very much seen as a symbol of Ukrainian resistance. You had songs being written about the Bayraktar. You had, I think, meerkats in a Ukrainian zoo being named after the Bayraktar. They were seen as a, a last-ditch resistance attempt supplied by Turkey. Turkey to really hold off the Russians as they were marching towards Kiev. Now, the impact of the TB2, has that continued during the conflict or, or has it started to wane? I couldn't really say really what impact it's having today. I mean, it could be having an impact that isn't on the front line that we don't know too much about, perhaps patrolling Ukraine's northern border or its southern coastline. You know, Ukraine is pretty quiet on the operations of its TB2s, so it's hard to say with certainty, but it does not seem like the Bayraktar is being used extensively in frontline operations like it has in other conflicts, in like in Nagorno-Karabakh in 2020 or in other recent conflicts. Well, yeah, in Nagorno-Karabakh in 2020, it was seen as a bit of a tank buster. There were those who were saying that tanks were no longer in any way fit for the front lines of war. It was kind of the death of the tank. But that's something that we certainly haven't seen in Ukraine. Tanks are most certainly playing a frontline role in that conflict, and more so than ever. So perhaps when we look at the medium-altitude long-endurance systems, and you know, this includes US systems. We saw that there was that interception by the Russians of a US Reaper drone over the Black Sea, which was then forced to crash into the Black Sea itself. And then you've had the deployment of US Global Hawk drones 
drones in and around that region as well. One of the world's most high-tech, sophisticated, unarmed surveillance drones. Let's make it very clear that, that is an unarmed system, but it is very useful to provide the broader situational awareness of the conflict. So we're mapping this out, Dan, as we go. We've got the smaller systems, the quadcopters. We've got the giant systems, the medium-altitude, long-endurance drones. Now, take us into these systems that we've, we've heard more about in Ukraine than any other conflict before, these kamikaze suicide drones. What are they? Well, I prefer to call them loitering munitions or, or one-way attack drones, but the term covers a, a wide variety of systems, uh, ranging from tiny systems that you can launch from your hands, some of them based off of quadcopters, to much larger drones like the Shahed systems that are being used by Russia in Ukraine, and also the Israeli Harpy drone, which is another very common one of these larger systems. So they, they run from about a kilogram in size to 150 kilograms, and that encompasses sort of the broad range of these systems. It's an increasingly diverse uh, marketplace for these drones. In the past, it was a, it was really confined to a handful of systems. And as I recently laid out in my report, there are over 200 types of these uh, drones that are being marketed uh, today. So it's a broad marketplace. It's a broad term. Uh, and it's hard to definitively, you know, pin it down on any one type of system. But by and large, these are drones that are designed to explode upon impact with a target. So these are one-way attack drones. Most drones that are being used in military operations are, are recoverable, being used for surveillance or reconnaissance. These are designed for destruction. And although some of them could be recovered in some instances, in most instances they're designed to explode. And am I right in thinking that their unique selling point is the fact that they can be sent in their multiples towards a target and to overwhelm enemy air defences? And so you have these... It's not a swarm, but it's like a rudimentary swarm, a, a multi-drone deployment, a saturation strike against an enemy. I mean, that gives them their value, their effectiveness on the battlefield. Well, yes, and we can get into this when we talk about the history of these systems in a moment. But really, it, when the original concept for loitering munitions for one-way attack drones uh, came about, they were really thought of as a defense suppression tool. And so they were thought of as a means of suppressing enemy air defenses. And in that, in that way, they could be launched by the hundreds, by the thousands, and they could really harass and force these enemy air defenses to not go online and not to hunt friendly aircraft. Well, Dan, take us into this history. How far do we possibly need to go back to talk about what we see today as a fundamentally incredibly modern and high-tech weapon system? Well, most accounts prior to my study that, that I found trace the origins of one-way attack drones to Vloydian munitions to the late 1980s, to the development of this drone called the, the Harpy by Israel Aerospace Industries. And so what I wanted to do with my study was to dig a little deeper into the origins of this concept of Vloydian munitions. And what I found was there's a lot more history to the origins of Vloydian munitions than uh, many people expect. And the story of the, how these drones came about in the early 1970s, in the late Vietnam War, post-Vietnam War era, is really an interesting story for the origins of, of all modern drones, uh, not just loading munitions. Well, take us into this, Dan. I mean, if we're talking about drones and we're talking about the Vietnam War, I mean, when you think of Vietnam, you think of rolling thunder. You think of piloted bombers 
going in and laying waste to vast swathes of the country. But not only Vietnam, of course, but Laos as well, which is the most bombed country on Earth. We're talking about cluster bombs. We're talking about napalm. We're talking about Agent Orange. You don't talk about drones. So what role did drones play in Vietnam? Well, they actually had quite a large role, and not the drones that we typically think of, but these were a drone called the Lightning Bug, and they were a type of drone that was modified after target drones. And so target drones up until the Vietnam War were the dominant type of drone that were in military use. And they were used during the Second World War, weren't they, the target drones? Oh, yes, absolutely. And they've been in use since, I'd say, the 1930s. And so since then, the target drone has been in, in military use. And in the early 1960s, the U.S. military, was seeking a drone that could be used for long-distance reconnaissance. And so they modified this drone, the Fire Bee, and it became the lightning bug in the Vietnam War, and they modified it to conduct reconnaissance. Then they conducted thousands, over 3,000 missions uh, with the lightning bug in Vietnam. But uh, the lightning bug had lots of drawbacks. It was expensive to operate. You had to have hundreds of personnel and aircraft to launch and recover it. And it was also not remotely controlled. It would fly along a pre-programmed path. And so it wasn't very adaptive or responsive to situations on the ground. And uh, they were also, uh, yeah, expensive to build, expensive to operate. And so late towards as the Vietnam War was waning down in, in around 1970, or I guess that, that was at the height of the Vietnam War, but in that, around 1970, the U.S. military was seeking an alternative to these lightning bugs. And uh, they were really looking at smaller systems that could be remotely controlled in some instances and that were most importantly cheaper to operate and cheaper to build. I mean, that makes perfect sense. I remember talking to David Axe about the use of the lightning bug in Vietnam, and he was saying that not only were they pretty unreliable, they crashed quite a lot, but then you didn't have a live information transmission relay. So you couldn't send the data it was collecting straight back to an information hub and for it to be used in real time. Instead, these drones were taking picture after picture over the conflict, and then they would kind of crash land somewhere in a pre-designated area. Then you'd have to send troops out to go and get them, bring them back, develop the film. And so you'd have this real delay in the OODA loop, in your ability to observe, orient, decide, and act. And by the time you got that data back, it could well have been very much out of date. So you can understand exactly why the US military post-Vietnam, I mean, as you're starting to gather lessons from the conflict itself, one of the lessons is, yeah, drones could be useful, but we need to improve them no end. So how do they start to improve these systems? Yeah, so in 1970 and in the years afterwards, there were a number of studies that were looking at remotely piloted vehicles. This was the term that was term de jour that was coming of age at that point. And it speaks a lot to the shift from the Vietnam War era drones to this new type of drone that could be remotely controlled by operators on the ground and feedback images to operators. And they were really looking for inspiration on how to build these systems cheaply. And for that, they turned to model aircraft builders. And so there was a, an Air Force program uh, called a Teleplane Project in the early 1970s that was building model aircraft and seeking to gain lessons from these what was at the time an increasingly popular hobby and gain lessons that could be applied to military systems. So the Teleprain project actually ran up, up until the 1980s, into the 1980s, and developed a lot of different technologies that would prove useful for um, these new types of drones. 
You see, that's fascinating because when it came to those opening stages of the war in Ukraine, the hobbyist shops across Ukraine donated their entire hobbyist drone arsenal towards the war effort. And so it was these hobbyist commercial systems that were quickly and directly put into the military's hands. And what you're saying here is actually all the way back then, we had the military turning to the hobbyists once again to try and learn and to innovate. So what did they learn? Well, there's a couple more pieces to this. There was also another project at the CIA, Central Intelligence Agency, that was backed by the Department of Defense to develop a drone based off of a hobbyist model, a kit-built drone, packed with explosives and sent into um, a target to explode. And uh, this project was backed as by the uh, DOD, by DARPA, or ARPA as it was known at the time, the Advanced Research Projects Agency. And at the DOD at the time was a man named John Foster. And John Foster was the head of uh, defense uh, engineering and technology. And he was also a big model airplane enthusiast. Ah. And so he really believed that the model aircraft inspired drones uh, really provided a, an example of a technology that could have military use and be at the same time a lot more affordable than the, the larger drones that were used in the Vietnam War era, like the lightning bugs. I see. And how successful was he in bridging this gap between his day-to-day -day hobby and the military himself? Was he able to include these systems into the military? Were they able to be open to innovation? We know that often inter-service rivalry, bureaucracy can really draw these things back. And there's so many times where I've looked into the history of drones that there's been these false starts where initial investment has been put in and then it's just quickly abandoned. So how successful was he? Well, he left shortly after the Air Force took on the project. And so in 1974, 1975, the Air Force launched its own project to develop expendable drones that would suppress enemy air defenses. And they called them harassment drones because they thought these drones would harass the enemy air defenses and force them to stay offline and not to turn on, on their radars. And so these drones would be equipped with a uh, radar seeker and an explosive and basically fly into the target and explode once they detected the enemy radar turning on. And so as long as the enemy radar stayed off, then the drone would not attack it. But if it turned on, then the drone would sense that and, and dive in for an attack. So the Air Force started this project in, in 1975, the harassment drone project. It would have several names. It would evolve over time. By the late 1970s, there was a number of cutbacks in fundings for the Department of Defense after the end of the Vietnam War, and a number of drone projects at the time were on the cutting block. The predecessor to the Global Hawk, which you mentioned, uh, a project called Compass Cope, was also cut at that time, as were a number of other projects to develop drones that could be used uh, for reconnaissance and for strike missions. So the harassment drone project survived only because it had the support of West Germany. So West, the West German Air Force bought into this project in 1975, and they saw a lot of value in this idea of harassment drones. And so between the Air Force, the U.S. Air Force and the West German Air Force, this idea of harassment drones survived. And in 1979, they launched a project together collaboratively called Locusts. And lo the Locust Project eventually failed a few years later, uh, but it would prove an important step towards advancing this concept of one-way attack drones. Is LOCUS uh, an acronym, a very clever acronym, or is it merely symbolic in the fact that it fills all of our heads with the terrifying imagery of a plague of locusts coming all in at once to swarm and to decimate entire crops? 
No, I don't think it was an acronym, although there is a more recent project in the past 10 years that the U.S. Navy has launched, also named Locust, also with drones being used for suppressing enemy air defenses, and that is an acronym. So there's two Locust pro projects, uh, somewhat confusingly, but the original Locust project was a collaboration with West Germany, and uh, it only lasted for a few years. The West Germans had to withdraw from the project because of their own funding cutbacks in the early 1980s. But uh, again, it would prove an, an important step because there were West German firms developing drones for the Locust project that would uh, go on to inform the development of the Harpy, the first commercially successful loading munition. So that's the connection between all these different projects and systems. You see, there's two aspects there, Dan. I mean, first of all, I think we need to do an entire episode just looking at how militaries name their projects, because I can only imagine the sheer amount of time and possibly drinking around a table that goes in to naming certain weapon systems. I mean, you can just look back through the history of worryingly creative names that have gone in to, to different drones, but also to different fighter jets and air defense systems and missiles that are out there. But the second thing here, Dan, is what did the West Germans want to use them for? Was this envisioned as a major kind of advancement that would help them defend West Germany in the very real prospect at this moment in time that there could have been a vast land invasion from the Soviet Union? Yes, precisely. After the 1973 October War or Arab-Israeli War, the U.S. Air Force and the West German Air Force took similar lessons from that conflict in that they both saw drones as a, a possible technological solution to the, the growing sophistication of uh, Soviet air defense systems, uh, radar-controlled air defense systems. So to suppress these radar-controlled um, air defense systems, they thought of expendable drones might be a cost-efficient solution, particularly from the German perspective, because they were tasked with defending a, a vast geographic area on NATO's northern flank. And basically, by the early 1980s, they came around to the realization that they would not have the planes personnel available to conduct that, those missions unless they invested in more advanced technologies like drones. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on not just the Tudors from History Hit, my guests and I run through the full gamut of human emotion and experience. From the heartbreak of the Virgin Queen, Elizabeth not being able to marry arguably the only man in the world she ever really wanted to marry, may have, for that reason, not married anyone else. To a prenatal battle of the sexes. A male and a female seed meet in the womb at conception, and whichever one is stronger determines the sex of the unborn child. From Lady Jane Grey facing her executioner. You can't help but feel just the utmost sympathy for this young girl. To why the Laughing Cavalier is, well, laughing. He strikes me as someone who goes off on a sort of swaggering booze up. Subscribe now to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. So weirdly, 
when we look back at the origins, the, the real kind of serious origins of the loitering munition of the kamikaze suicide drone, although I'm very much buying into this term of harassment drone, then we need to look that it was a threat from the Soviet Union. It was a threat from the Soviet Union of a massive ground invasion and the fact there wouldn't be sufficient air power capability that really pioneered this use. And it's uh, a weird kind of poetic irony that that's exactly how they've been used in Ukraine today. But before we get back to the contemporary conflict in Europe, you mentioned that it was the kind of forerunner to the Harpy drone. So at what point does Israel take up this project and start to learn lessons from what the West Germans had put forward? Mid-1970s to the late 1970s, Israel was developing uh, small drones, some of which were based off of uh, model airplanes like the US, and, and some of which would go on to become the first really successful uh, modern drones in combat in 1982, the II Scout and the um, Tataran Mastiff, which were both used uh, successfully in those campaigns for scouting out and identifying Syrian air defenses. So Israel was experienced at that point in developing and, and using drones. They'd used drones in 1973 in a limited uh, case, and again in 1982. And so by the mid-1980s, West Germany had restarted its program to acquire anti-radar harassment drones independently of the U.S. was pursuing its own efforts at this point, which did not prove too successful. But Germany had its own program at this point, West Germany. And uh, Dornier, uh, in its bid for the West German program, had partnered with a company called Mazlat, M-A-Z-L-A-T, which was a subsidiary of Israel Aerospace Industries. So Dornier had partnered with Mazlat on their bid for this West German program. At some point, it's unclear how, uh, but at some point there were two drones that were released that were remarkably similar. The Dornier Dar, which had its origin in the 1970s, and the in 1986, the IAR Harpy. And they were basically the same drone from a technical perspective. That's fascinating. I've never known anything about this West German innovative link-up in terms of the history of drones. It's always been the idea that it was the US and Israel that pioneered these systems for a very, very long time. And so, you know, it doesn't surprise me, Dan, that your research and your very technical know-how is helping us to, to revisit and, and rewrite this history. Now, how does this link us through into the more modern deployment of systems today? Well, just on your last point, it was actually in the early 1970s when the U.S. was seeking inspiration for uh, these alternatives to the lightning bugs, these cheaper drones. They were actually turned to German firms at the time, like Dornier and other German firms that were developing drones. So West German firms were quite advanced in the 1970s and 1980s in developing their own systems. And by the time the 1980s came around, they were really seeking international partners and international expansion. So they, they partnered with British firms, with Israeli firms. And so your question was regarding the development of the modern drone. So this whole story about the origins of loitering munitions uh, fits into the broader transition of the drone market from one that was focused on the drones inspired by the target drones, the jet-powered, fast-moving, cumbersome, expensive target drones, to this very diverse marketplace of systems that were, some of which were electric-powered, a lot of which were based off of model aircraft designs and adopted a, a broad variety of configurations, the vast majority of which were propeller-driven, unlike the jet-powered 
target drones of the 1960s and the Vietnam War era. So the development of the loitering munition is really a key player in this transition to a completely different marketplace for drones and one that is the origins of the modern marketplace that we have today. You see, that makes perfect sense to me because one thing I think we overlook when we analyse drones that are being used around the world today and most specifically in Ukraine is the fact that many of them are pretty basic. You know, they run off propellers. Many of them have a two-stroke piston engine, which makes them incredibly reliable. But it also means that they have fantastic fuel consumption. And so their range just increases exponentially. I mean, I think something like the Shahed 136 has a range of around 2,000 kilometers and a pretty low price tag. I mean, something like $50,000, right? That's what's been reported, yes. Yeah. So, you know, if you look back at the Jane's, you know, yearbooks from the 1960s, you know, you can count maybe 30 to 40 drones they list there, and most of which are based off of these jet powered target drones. But by the mid 1980s, there were over 200 types of drones, and they were really being proposed for a much wider variety of missions, and some of which were harassment enemy radars, but also for surveillance and reconnaissance and artillery spotting. And so the marketplace just completely changed. And the teleplane project, the development of the harassment vehicle, the harassment drone programs were a small part, but an important part in propelling this transition from the jet-powered target drone to the propeller-driven modern drone that we recognize and know today. I'm going to note your use of propelled this. I hope that was most certainly an intended pun, and I'm going to keep that one for myself. But do you think that this is the reason why we're seeing these systems spread around the world today? If we look back to 2010, there were 60 different nations that had uh, different types of drones, had military drone programs. I mean, I'm quoting your own stats back at you here, Dan. This is from your own report. And if we move through to 2023 now, it's probably what? Something like uh, 113 different nation states that have access to drones, maybe around 65 non-state actors that have access to drones. I mean, if you look at that shift from 60 states to 113, that's around a 88% increase in just over a decade. And so is all of this being driven by the fact that drones aren't these high-tech systems that we think they are? Instead, they're cheap to buy, easy to maintain, cheap to fuel, and simple to use. Yes, well, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. And if we look at drones, a segment of drones, of one-way attack drones specifically, the change has been even more dramatic. You know, in, in 2017, I co-authored a report at the Center for the Study of the Drone with my colleague Arthur Hall and Michelle on loading munitions. And uh, we found at the time, you know, around 30 different types of loading munitions from, I think, around 15, 12, 15 different countries. And what I've documented now in, in my most recent report is, you know, over 200 types of uh, loading munitions on the market today, or most of which are on the market today, around 15% in this report are historical systems, and over 30 countries producing these drones. So it's really um, been a dramatic growth in the marketplace for one-way attack drones, uh, for loading munitions. And I think a lot of that is being driven by, obviously, the operational examples in Ukraine and Nagorno-Karabakh and other recent conflicts in which these drones have been used, but also the advantages that these weapons offer over other types of more conventional munitions like missiles and, and other guided munitions. And piloted aircraft, of course, because let's just delve into that for a second. 
Now, when you were mentioning the fact that it was West Germany that didn't have a, you know, a gigantic air power capacity, was trying to fill the gaps with drones. If you look and see the different nation states that are acquiring drones around the world today, they're trying to do something very similar. You can think back to just a couple of years ago with Ethiopia. They were faced with the Tigray rebels marching on the capital. And so what do they do? Well, they have this kind of international donation of drones to them to try and fight off the Tigray rebels because they didn't have sufficient air power capability with traditional air power to fight off this rebel group coming to overthrow the regime. And so we've reached a point in history where drones are helping to keep up regimes and to decide the fate of nations. Do we think, or do you think with your research, that as we look forward to the future, we will see that it's these smaller states and these medium states that will acquire vast arsenals of these harassment drones, loitering munitions, kamikaze, suicide drones, call them what you will, but we'll start to see them used en masse across different continents around the world? I think it's possible, uh, certainly. I mean, the fact is that these drones are being increasingly developed and, and sold uh, by countries that have not been traditional powers in, in the drone marketplace. Uh, and so, you know, you look at a lot of the drones that are emerging in, in the loaded munitions marketplace, and there a lot of them are from um, Asia and also from the Middle East. Uh, and not too many new systems are being developed by Israel and the U.S., although the systems that originate from those two countries are still widely used in modern conflicts. Um, but um, it's become a lot more diversified, the, the marketplace. Uh, and so that's likely a reflection of the interest in these systems from around the world. Which makes it harder to regulate and, of course, more sources for different states, perhaps hostile states, to acquire drones from. And there are many states that most deliberately place their drone systems into the hands of non-state actors in a proxy war fashion to do their bidding for them. Now, if we can turn our attention to, to the future, Dan... What do you think will be the trends we start to see being included into these loitering munitions? Are we starting to see more autonomous features? Are they being driven by AI? Do we see increases in yield? So that is the explosive power. Do we see increases in range? I mentioned the fact you've got, you know, 2,000 kilometers of the Iranian drones. Are we going to see them going 5,000, 10,000 kilometers? Do we see a future of intercontinental drone threats? I think on some level, the trends in loaded munitions are trends that are evident in other sectors of the drone marketplace. Uh, you know, a focus on developing low-cost, small, portable drones for the small units, the infantry units, is a priority in the loaded munitions marketplace as it is in other aspects of the drone uh, marketplace. And so, you know, one of the things that I found was that there's been a, a big increase in the number of vertical takeoff and landing VTOL loaded munitions, and including quadcopter drones. And that's also evident in some military programs, like the U.S. Special Operations Command has a program to develop vertical takeoff and landing uh, loading munitions. And one of the potential benefits of these drones, besides from the fact that they're portable and they can be used in a lot of different environments, is that they could potentially be recovered if the operator doesn't find a target, whereas a fixed-wing drone has to have a parachute or some other kind of recovery system that um, would enable it to be recovered in the instance that the, the operator calls off the attack or something else happens where they, they can't carry out the strike. So 
that's one trend I'd say. And in terms of AI, you know, and automation, it's interesting. The the harpy is often held up as an example of an autonomous weapon, and it's kind of amusing because the, the as we've discussed, the concept from the harpy is a, is an old one. It's from the dates from the 1970s. But I think more lately in recent years, you know, that idea of an autonomous weapon has been complicated because of an evolving understanding of what constitutes autonomy in in weapon systems and machines, and also a realization that there are more facets to autonomy than simply carrying out a strike on a particular type of, of target. And so some of the manufacturers of loading munitions today advertise them as an autonomous weapon. However, it's hard to tell to what extent they are truly able to carry out action independent of a, of a human operator, you know, how advanced is that technology or is, it, is all of this just marketing copy? And I think a lot of, in a lot of these cases, it is just marketing copy. But one also has to recognize that autonomy in drones is a priority of uh, both weapons developers and, and military planners for uh, defense programs in the U.S. And, and elsewhere in the world. So it's a complicated picture, but one that's continuing to evolve. And let's be clear what we mean by autonomy here. We're talking about the fact that we could see a future, and some people say we've already reached this future, where you can have one of these harassment drones, these suicide kamikaze loitering drones, that could be sent out from a base. Maybe it's a vertical takeoff and landing. Maybe it doesn't need a runway. It can be sent across the battlefield with a preset algorithm, a little computer brain on board. It uses its camera as its eyes and it has a pre-programmed set which says to it, well, you're looking for this target. And if you find this particular type of target based upon the database inside you, or perhaps it's linked to a cloud and it can gather vast amounts of data and compare the targets it's seeing on the ground to a whole database of different pictures within its, within its mind, it can then decide whether or not that target is legitimate to be taken out, to strike. And that could, in theory, and perhaps in practice, include a human target. And so we're rushing towards a world here where we can send up these robotic drones that can take the choice to kill a human being without the human being in the loop of control. The role of autonomy in loitering munitions in particular has evolved, and I think it exemplifies the evolution of autonomy in drones writ large. There was a, one of the ill-fated successors to Locust uh, was a program called LOCAS, and that was the Low-Cost Autonomous Attack System. And that was an Air, U.S. Air Force project in the beginning of the early 1990s that ran into the early 2000s. And that was, again, as the name implies, it was designed to be autonomous, and it was designed to identify targets, not just radar, but other types of targets, and be able to choose what types of warhead it would use depending on the type of target it identified. And so this was a, an evolution from the low-cast and the harassment vehicle concept that was seen as more sophisticated and more adaptable to the you know varieties of targets one may need to take out on the battlefield. But eventually, in the early 2000s, the Air Force uh, decided that, no, it wasn't actually reliable enough to be used in combat, and it was never acquired. And in fact, in the end, they did explore um, adding a, um, an operator data link that would allow an operator to control it. So up until the early 2000s, uh, a lot of the drones, the loading munitions, were developed with this idea that the operator didn't need to be involved in the operation. But beginning in the early 2000s, even the, uh, the Harpy, the prototypical loading munition, was a variant of 
which was developed with a uh, data link called the HAREP, and that's the drone that was used in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh um, extensively. So there's certainly been an evolution in the understanding, it's, and most loading munitions that are on the market today are advertised with this operator data link. So. See, that's fascinating as well, Dan. So what we're saying is, you know, we can look at these things we're calling contemporary and future trends, but actually even this ambition to remove the human from the loop of control, the loop of decision-making goes back to the 1970s and the 1980s. And actually it's something that's just reaching maturity now. And uh, if anything, for me, that makes it even more likely that it's something we're going to be unable to control or unable to stop. I'm going to move through to my final question for you, Dan, because I want to come back to this question about range, because I do think it's important. Because when you look at the fact that Russia can now send drones over 2,000 kilometers, you know, it can hit the far targets in Lviv, in, in, in the far west of Ukraine, you know, that's 70 kilometers away from the Polish border. In theory, that brings the entirety of Europe's major capital cities into range from their launch site in, in, in Belarus. Does the increasing range of drones worry you? And, and are we seeing that the range is increasing at a rapid rate? I think range is a factor of, of a lot of different aspects. I mean, the Iranian drones, you know, they, uh, you know, unlike a lot of the drones that I studied in, in the report, they are pre-programmed. Uh, they don't have an operator, operator data link. And so they're not flexible systems. You know, they're sent to specific targets, um, even if they're long distance away. So range is part of a wider discussion uh, involving uh, what we've been talking about in terms of, um, you know, the susceptibility of the data link uh, to adversary electronic warfare attacks and and what that might mean for the ability of the drone to conduct its mission. So, yeah, range, I think, will always be limited by a number of factors, uh, whether it's the configuration of the aircraft or the sophistication of the data link to, that connects the aircraft to the operator. But I think part of the motivation among military planners to incorporate greater levels of autonomous capabilities in drones is to increase that range and to, to allow it to be able to fly farther without risking it to electronic warfare attacks that might uh, disrupt that data link between the operator and the, and the aircrafts. And so I think range is certainly an important factor, but it's not the dictating factor in the types of drones that are being developed as loading munitions today. So drones are going to get longer range, but harder to bring down and more autonomous in their features. And all of that together provides a quite disquieting future. Dan, thank you so much for taking us on this journey. You've propelled us through the history of drones. We have droned on. I know that that is not remotely funny. They are all the puns that I have for drones in my own arsenal. Dan, thank you so much for your time. You're going to have to tell us where can we read more? Where can we read your latest report on drones? So it's at the Vertical Flight Society's website. We can search for one-way attack drones, Vertical Flight Society, and it's available on our website. Dan, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening. A reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.